We're continuing with the uh, talk entitled Fumbling and Groping. And this was given by Lumpur Cha to the Western Sangha, probably about 1980 or 81. This mindfulness we've been discussing and practicing can be called recollection. There could be some confusion over the terminology here. When mindfulness arises and knows something, it becomes perception or memory. And this is impermanent, something that can deteriorate. For example, I may want to call the monk named Jagaro, but I say Pamuto. I know what I want to do, but when it comes to speaking, I say something else. So Ajahn Jagaro was the abbot of uh, Wat Pananachat at that time, and uh, Tan Pamuto was the, um, uh, a monk who was very skilled at building and who was uh, constructing uh, Lumpur Cha's uh, nursing kuti at Wat Bapong. So I don't really have been uh, probably why those particular names came to mind with that group. I know what I want to do, but when it comes to speaking, I say something else. And I'm aware of this happening. That's the impermanence of perception. This change and instability occur as time passes. We get older and the brain weakens. It's only the natural decay and worsening of the elements according to the principle that perception is impermanent, uncertain. We can see this happening clearly, but it happens by itself. We see it's like that and we accept it. The Buddha taught that memory is impermanent, as are the other aggregates of body and mind, so we don't hold tightly to all these things as being self or other. If there's nothing happening, you don't need to investigate anything. Just remain in an ordinary state. For example, when you're sweeping your dwelling, if no one calls to you, of course, you don't need to look. If someone says, hello there, then you look, and you're aware of what's happening and what business the person may have with you. After that, you just keep on sweeping. If something is there, we investigate. If not, there's nothing to investigate. We're just mindfully aware of our own abiding. There is careful attentiveness. We're not simply letting ourselves go. Whatever may occur, we will know. It isn't dwelling in unawareness, but we don't have to go thinking and seeking, trying to find something or figure anything out. When there is contact with the senses, we have the inner awareness to watch it. When mindfulness is in charge and protects us in this way, there's tranquility in the mind, which will lead to wisdom because of seeing all these things. Please look into this. When it's time to sweep up leaves, then sweep. Maintain your awareness as you sweep and contemplate whatever occurs. Don't merely sweep with a blank, indifferent mind. If you keep your mindfulness up, the mind can enter a, con a concentrated state. You'll think, well, sweeping the grounds is good after all. We keep the monastery clean and we practice meditation to sweep the afflictions out of the mind. Your mind will converse with itself like this and wisdom will keep on growing. So, uh, the, um, the word sati in Pali, uh, which is the most common word for mindfulness, is related to the Sanskrit word smriti, uh, which means uh, uh, generally uh, more specifically the quality of memory, being able to remember things. So there is a, 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 a relationship between mindfulness and remembering. And when sometimes when the Buddha gives a definition of you know, what is mindfulness, what is uh, 
that quality. He says the ability to recollect conversations that have happened long ago or to um, say put your, uh, your thoughts in, in order so that there is a relationship between uh, mindfulness and, uh, and memory. But he's also then pointing out that memory on its own is something that is not reliable. And, um, and so, as he said, he might want to say the word uh, jaguaro, but then what comes out of his mouth is pomuto. So, oh, <laughs> but then he is aware of like, oh, I just said pomuto instead of jaguaro. Okay. And so that, um, that kind of uh, uh, f- uh, flawed nature of, of memory, that became something that was... Uh, stronger as uh, Ajahn Chah's um, health uh, difficulties uh, increased over that, that period, 81, 82, 83, and um, he had some kind of a a, um, a stroke or some sort of uh, cause of brain damage, um, and so for a while he could still he could still speak and converse and had a bit of movement, but then after about nine months or a year, then that that faded uh, altogether. But uh, during that period, when he he he'd had a sort of serious brain uh, brain damage, uh, but he could still speak. He he made a, a reference to this. He, those of you who will uh, be familiar with what a telephone exchange is, you see them in old movies nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Not that anybody actually work. They, they don't actually exist as a functioning job anymore. But where a telephone operator, when you you wanted to make a long distance call, you call the operator. And the operator would take a, 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 a wire and plug it into a particular socket so you could, you could make a long-distance call or connect you to somebody. And so uh, the way that, uh, as I understand it, uh, uh, that uh, Lumpur Chah talked about it, um, uh, he said when talking about this kind of issue where he would try and say something but the wrong words would come out, he'd be aware that he just said something completely bizarre or the, the wrong name would come out. But he said uh, he described it as the monkeys are playing around in the telephone exchange, so that the kind of the monkeys are pulling out the wires from one place and plugging them into the wrong socket. So that it's like, yeah, I mean to say Jagaro, but Pamuta comes out. Oh, that wasn't the right socket to go to. So he could see it happening, but he couldn't necessarily uh, uh, control that. So I would say that's genuine mindfulness is recognizing. Oh, I just said the wrong thing, <laughs> and that. The um, being aware of the uncertain and uh, unstable dependent nature of a perception, that which knows the uncertainty and instability, that is that is reliable, but the the, the objects that take shape in terms of what we what we um, what we speak or actions that that happen, sometimes uh, also um, with uh, aging or with dementia or brain injury and those kind of um, disconnections can happen so that um, someone will uh, they'll know that they that they are they're thirsty but then they pick up the the vase of flowers instead of a instead of a, a cup of water it's like oh right there's water yeah I'm thirsty there's water in the flat in the vase that's not to be drunk <laughs> so they can put the vase down go and, and, and get a cup of water instead and so those, those disconnects easily happen but again even as those faculties are breaking down. We can we can see it happening, and there can be a a, um, a kind of uh, an ease and a, a, uh, an accommodating attitude uh, within that. When uh, the uh, elderly Christian monk Father Bede Griffiths came to uh, um, to the to the states, was giving some some dhamma talks in the in the 
San Francisco Bay Area, or giving some Christian talks. <laughs> he was also, he was he had a sort of Christian Hindu ashram called Shantivanam in India that he was a leader of and founder of. And uh, and the, he was being interviewed on the radio, uh, and um, I I saw uh, an account of the like a, a transcript of the the interview they did with him, and they uh, were asking him about his experience of aging. He was about ninety by this time, and he uh, and he had this um. A very, uh, very English uh, manner of, of speech, very sort of classically English uh, tone of voice, and um, uh, you know, come through the printed word. Uh, and he said, "Well, you know, I used to be so frightfully erudite. I knew all these things, and so much. I've, I wrote so many books and had so, so many sort of important things to say about all sorts of things. And now it's all gone. <laughs> and there was this kind of." Um, uh, you could feel this sense of there was no sense of loss, but all that thing, all that kind of stuff he was praised for and and uh, people admired. He said, "As long as I can remember which door I left my sandals at, I'm fine." <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was the only thing that was uh, concerning to him. Like, where have I left my sandals? And all the rest, being a, a scholar of the Upanishads and the and the, um, the the New Testament and so forth, all of that was. They could easily, happily let go of, but uh, where are my sandals? <laughs> was the, the the main cause of concern, and so that I thought was a, a very good example. Someone in the the uh, aged, um, the the changes of, of an aged condition taking shape, that not relating to it as a sense of loss or something going wrong or something that shouldn't be that way, but just okay, there goes another one, and and uh, looking at that weakening of faculties as a part of natural change. Just as Lumpur Chah puts it here, this change and instability occur as time passes. We get older and the brain weakens. He was also quite upfront about, uh, he, he uh, was able to do ordinations, um, he had permission to do ordinations for about five years between um, between 77 and uh, about 82 when his, his faculty, faculties really waned. I, I was fortunately within that five-year period, my own ordination was. Um, but there's quite a lot of chanting that you have to learn as a preceptor. Um, and that uh, after he'd done uh, a, a number of ordinations for the first couple of years, by the time he got to, to sort of 79, 80, he, could, he was quite upfront that he couldn't remember uh, all of the, the material that he was supposed to be reciting and he would just use a, a, a book in front of him because his it's not there. <laughs> you know, that, uh, and it wasn't through lack of, lack of uh, effort or interest or commitment, but just, it's not there. So uh, he, um, he resorted to using a, a, a book in the, the last couple of years he was doing ordinations. So then um, it goes to, uh, onto the theme of, of simplicity, and, and I think it's, a, it's very, very helpful advice. If there's something to be aware of, be aware of it and uh, investigate it. If there's nothing to be aware of, don't <laughs> don't create anything. Don't have to uh, um, to fill up the mind with with activity. We don't have to go thinking and seeking, trying to find something or figure anything out. Um, that uh, if there's nothing to investigate, leave it alone. Just enjoy the uh, the inner quiet uh, of that time. And uh, then in that last part of um, the the um, 
passage I was reading here, your mind will converse with itself like this and wisdom will keep on growing. That was, again, a very strong characteristic of Ajahn Chah's own mind that he comes across a lot in his teachings of his sort of inner dialogue going on, sort of examining and exploring um, uh, his own mental processes, his own flow of thoughts and feelings and attitudes. So as he puts it here, your mind will converse with itself like this. So it was a kind of inner dialogue going on with um, looking at his moods and feelings, thoughts and and attitudes and impressions that arose, kind of examining and exploring and seeing how things fitted together. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. Um, quite amazing to hear about the story more about the monkeys playing with the telephone wires in Kamsa The first time I heard was two and a half years ago. That specific day, I li- listened to one of your old talks about uh-huh. that, that one, and after two, three hours later, I got a message drop. And um, the experience I got during this talk was like massive because I, I lost, I mean, it lasted only two, three hours. Mm-hmm. But it, the only thought, um, and I didn't get any thoughts, all my thinking stopped, and my muscles were like completely, I, I, I didn't have any muscle control or anything. Hmm. But when the, the, I'm a very analytical person, uh, when the doctors put me into the CT machine, it was amazing feeling. Uh, like, if, if I know myself, I would like analyze and get, like, look really, get really frightened over things. But everything just stopped. But I had perfect awareness, like when everybody tells me things, I knew all the answers. Mm-hmm. But all the things coming out from me were basically garbage, and I went back to my original language as well. And even when I they asked me like birthday and all these things, I gave some answer. I knew the answer in my mind's eye, but the things came out from my uh, mouth was completely random. And the only thought that came that day was that monkeys playing in the uh, telephone wire. That's the only thing that came during this weekend. And then later later I was like always going back to the experience I had, knowing that I should be like really fearful about the mm-hmm. situation, but there was no fear. So even after the next day, I was always thinking why I wasn't like fearful, like knowing me. Like then I realized because there's th- that's my interpretation. It was like there's no thinking, nothing. I was fully in the present moment, like even when the doctors asked me to move to a different table, like I didn't have anything, I just do it, like if I was like fully aware of even the body movements and the feelings I have, I was fully aware of all the things, but not thinking, and because no future, I wasn't thinking about the future and the past, like there was so much peace, it's not, it's beyond peace, I think, and then when I came from the stroke, I just, uh, I, I just remember the, the story you told about Ajahn Chah. Mm-hmm. Like the, he had, maybe it's my interpretation, like you have the perfect awareness because in, in, in my case all my outputs were completely wrong but the incoming information was, I was fully aware mm-hmm. when people were talking, mm-hmm. it's like I was like, I can't express myself in, in, in any other way. Mm-hmm. 
I, I knew all things about my life, but all my scientific knowledge, everything was gone for those two, three hours. But I, I, I fully recovered within three, or three, three to four hours. I got my memory, all the knowledge I learned, all the education, everything was gone for a few hours. And then it came back, but then the, uh, I got to know about <laughs> how, I mean, that's how I, I moved to meditation and all these things. But <laughs> It was quite amazing today. I, I, I don't know. I, I hardly uh, I live far, far away, so I came today and uh, we were talking about these monkeys playing around. So <laughs> I just thought of today. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a wonderful yes, knowledge that I mean, I, I, I was lucky to listen to that talk mm -hmm. before my stroke, actually. Yeah, well, I'm fortunate that you came today. Thank it you. also reminds me your experience of there's a, a, a book called uh, My Stroke of Insights. Uh, Jill yes. Bolt Taylor. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, we had a very similar experience. And she was a neuroscientist and kind of an, uh, and sort of an expert in the field. And she was fully aware, oh, this is what's happening. My, my system is breaking down. And so that she kind of knew what was going on, but she was not capable of communicating. Yeah. And that, the, that there was that kind of scrambling of the inner faculties. And I feel the, the, the more that we understand that, that then as the aging process or, or if you get brain injuries or, or a stroke or so, or, you know, before we get older, but can happen at any time, the more we have that framework for those kind of things, then the less uh, stressful or problematic it is that you, the mind is able to appreciate, oh, this is what's going on. I haven't got a past or a future or a story, but here it is. This is what's going on. And that, uh, as you say, that the mind can be fully aware of what's happening, but just can't communicate. And rather than relating to that as some kind of terrible disaster or a, a loss, to be able to recognize what the, what's, what's happening, um, then the, it, it's still inconvenient, obviously. <laughs> but uh, uh, there isn't that kind of dukkha being added to it, or that, the, that sort of um, feeling of, uh, of profound frustration or, or, or loss, or like Father Bede Griffiths, Saying, you know, as long as I can remember where I left my sandals, I'm fine. <laughs> but the, all the rest was, it was quite, uh, quite uh, content with that no longer being there. All these um, erudite things that he'd written about the the uh, the Gospels and the Upanishads and whatever. So that that, the more that we can appreciate the the fragile and dependent nature of those mental functions when they go then rather than feeling that something's gone wrong, it's like, oh, you know, there goes another one. And that, uh, and it seems that as Ajahn Chah's condition was degenerating over those, those months, that he was fully aware of that and was sort of trying to communicate to, to others that he was quite, uh, quite okay within himself, even though he couldn't, he couldn't communicate. And all the, the things that came out of his mouth were very sort of strange or unpredictable. And, and so there was quite a lot of people around him that were weeping and upset. <laughs> but it, it was within himself, he was fine. But uh, people around him were, were, reacted a lot to how he was such a, had been such a, a sort of clear-minded and, and, and um, uh, articulate uh, speaker and communicator. And suddenly all of that was, that was gone. And he, when he, would, he would come up with completely strange sentences that he hadn't been meaning to say at all, but you know, he <laughs> knew... That wasn't what I was going to say, and this sort of, uh, a string of, of peculiar words or unrelated words came out. 
So the people around him were getting upset, but he was internally he was fine. But I think the more that we can appreciate how that operates, then it's also uh, more uh, bearable and, and acceptable for the, you know, the people who are gathered around as well as the individual. So to continue. When the mind is in a settled and awake state resulting from proper meditation, it's like a freshly swept path. As soon as a few leaves fall, you'll notice them. They'll be easy to see on the ground. But if the mind is not guarded or controlled, it's like a forest floor covered with leaves. If a few more leaves fall, they're lost among those already on the ground. Wisdom grows as we see the nature of phenomena. We see there is no way to solve, undo or adjust things. We accept the transitory nature of existence, accept things as they are. And the result is peace. Suffering is quelled because of this surrender and acceptance. When we surrender, clinging attachment is uprooted. And we see there's really nothing there. There's nothing left. We have perceptions of self and others, beings, people and so forth. But in fact, these are only conventions, appearances. In ultimate transcendent reality, there is nothing. Men and women are like that. Asians and Westerners are like that. Everyone is actually like that. All are the same, and seeing this leads to a state of ease. For example, we're taught to meditate on the food we eat. Looking at it and contemplating properly, we can see that there's really nothing special, not a whole lot there. There is the food, and there is us. The two parts that are just the the two parts that are just the elements, and then they get put together. That's it. <laughs> Apologies to the kitchen team who <laughs> put great effort into <laughs> arranging that which is put together, the, arranging the various elements. That, uh, but, you know, it is true. It's just the elements here, the elements there. Two sets of elements get put together and you've got one set of elements. That's it. You won't get too worked up over your food now. But if you cannot see it like this, if you cannot accept that this is all there is to food, you will suffer. The person who accepts that the food and the one who eats it are the same, mere combinations of elements, they will have lightness. But for the person who cannot accept, there is heaviness. They're very astute observations there. <laughs> not, uh, uh, not unappreciative of having food offered, but also just in keeping a, a, a level attitude, an equanimous and clear-minded attitude. And then uh, to see how uh, uh, the, the mind creates designations and conventions and then buys into them, as Lumbo uh, puts it here. We have perceptions of self and others, beings, people and so forth, but in fact these are only conventions, appearances. In, a, in ultimate transcendent reality, there's nothing. The body we perceive is only a coming together of the elements. Men and women, Asians and Westerners, uh, everyone is actually like that. So that's uh, changing the perspective on our own uh, sort of relation to the, of the mind, to the physical world, our own body and the, the material world around us, the people and things around us, to just consider, uh, as the, you get also in the suttas, uh, earth element inside, earth element outside, it's just earth element, or water element inside, water element outside, it's just water element, or air element, fire element. 
And so it's a way of, of leveling that kind of attitude rather than this is my body and this, these are my things and that is out there, that's the world over there. And the habits of, of attachment to, to distinction and separation. And that using this kind of reflection on the elements and um, the commonality that there is between these different aspects of, of the world, there's a, as, uh, as Lung Po puts it, all of the same. And seeing this leads to a state of ease. So, and then just using a simple reflection like that, you know, earth element inside, earth element outside, just earth element. Ah, <laughs> as a sort of deflating quality. The mind climbs down from, yes, but, you know, and uh, it's as a, a, an easefulness, a spaciousness that, that's there. Calming down that sort of agitated attitude that the mind easily creates about people and things and uh, personal space and food and uh, environment and comfort, discomfort and, and so forth. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? About a stroke, mm-hmm. especially about the stroke in the book about the one stroke inside, you know, I've been analyzing a lot. It felt that uh, somehow the stroke and the mind would make this consciousness only almost like a nirvana and reaching enlightenment, and then uh, no ikilesa, no uh, analytical and you peaceful and only puru. So how is that brain related to that kind of state? The brain? Well, um, I would say that the brain is, is not so much the producer of mind, but it's more like the, the um, agency through which mind functions, like a, a, a radio does not produce the the signal the the, the sound uh, the voices that come through a radio they're broadcast from a transmitter somewhere else but you can only hear them because of the radio so our brain is more like a radio rather than like a, a, a generation station I would say so that um, if the radio breaks down it doesn't mean that the BBC is shut down it just means the radio hasn't got any batteries in it so <laughs> and so our brains um, you know, I would say this is a one one way of talking about it or considering it so the 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 mind is not dependent on the brain or the body and um but as long as we're functioning and alive then the 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 nature of the body and the the functionality of the body has its effect upon the mind but it's also an interesting thing um that uh it's a uh it's been noticed for centuries and centuries, thousands of years around the world, what's called terminal lucidity. That sometimes when somebody has been in a coma or they've had uh, dementia, they're, you know, they're very elderly or they're, uh, they've been ill for a long time, as their life is coming to an end, then um, they're, in the last few hours, then the mind can suddenly become lucid and able to to communicate. So sometimes people who've been non-verbal for for years or in a coma, they'll they'll wake up and they'll be able to talk with the people in the room and be completely compassmentis for a few hours just before they die. And it seems to be because the consciousness is no longer being affected by the chemistry of the body. And so there's a sort of window of opportunity whereby 
they um, they're, they're still alive, and the 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 negative effects of the body's mechanics no longer working are, are having their uh, impact, and so then they, the person can can communicate. So and it's been noticed for you know long, many many centuries, and all around the world. So it's called terminal lucidity. You can look it up on Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, but it's it's quite striking because it's uh, people have uh, seemingly been. Um, not exactly brain dead, but in a coma for years and years can uh, can emerge from that because the the, the malfunctioning of the, the 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 brain and the the sort of nervous system isn't having its negative effect. For, and then, but then, uh, but it's only there for a little while before the life comes to an end. Actually, in Tibet too, they, in Thai too, that the moment of death is a very crucial moment that you could uh, become enlightenment, especially those Tibetans. They have a book of death, mm -hmm. and they practice so much for that moment. And yeah, in Thailand, uh, we, we also believe that uh, that moment is very important. Uh, there's a belief in that, but also you find in the suttas, the Buddha saying, don't, don't make too much of it. Because um, there, there can be that e effect, or this, or particularly potent, but um, it's uh, putting everything on that, that last moment. <laughs> like there's a dialogue between the Buddha and Mahanama, who was the ruler of the Sakyans. The Buddha was back visiting Kapilavatu, and uh, so Mahanama was a cousin of his. And uh, Mahanama said, I'm really worried because you know, I'm, I'm the, the ruler uh, of, of the, the people, and uh, my head is filled with all this kind of nonsense about governing and looking after the security of the country and the economy and and so I'm really worried if I'm if I'm traveling on my elephant if I fall off my elephant or a wild horse comes along and knocks me over and I keel over and die in the street I'm going to die with my head filled with all of this nonsense and so that uh, I, I'm really concerned I'm really worried that my mind is going to be filled with all these sort of worldly concerns when that last moment comes. And then the Buddha says to him, do, do not be afraid, Mahanama, do not be afraid, because for many, many years your mind has been fortified. We had great faith in the Triple Gem. You've lived very skillfully. And so that um, yeah, uh, when uh, uh, the, that will have its effect, so that uh, uh, yeah, don't, be, don't be concerned, don't be afraid. So just as if you take a, a, an earthenware pot filled with ghee, like with fine oil, and you immerse that in a bowl of water, and you break the earthenware pot, the shards of, of clay will fall to the bottom of the, of the bowl, of the water, and the oil, the ghee, will, ref, will rise to the top. He said uh, that uh, if you die suddenly like that, then because of, your mind has been fortified for many, many years with great faith in the triple gem and, and so forth, then the the body will certainly break up, like the shards of clay will fall to the fall to the bottom. But your your mind will rise to distinction, like the ghee rising to the surface. So that's the advice that the Buddha gives to Mahanama. So that everything sort of hinging upon what the mind is doing at the last moment, like in the Christian tradition, having absolution, your final absolution on your deathbed from the priest. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and also Ajahn Chah's own, own way of working with it when um, actually it was a dialogue between him and, and Paul Brighter when Paul was a, was a monk and uh, some, he was with Ajahn Chah at Wapapong and then some villagers came in from Bangkok and said oh Lumpur, you know, 
old uh, poor Sam is, or I forget, I don't show the name of the, the villager. No, you know, poor Sam's uh, on his deathbed. Uh, uh, can you can you come and and see him, give him some advice? And Lumpur said, Nah, not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, Oh, you know, it'll it'll really comfort him. And, and Lumpur said, Nah, just tell us when he's gone, and we'll come and do the chanting. <laughs> and so uh, so Paul Brighter, Warapanyo, being a forthright New Yorker. So kind of took issue with that after the lay people had gone and said, Lumpur, that's really cruel, that's really unkind. You could have taught him meditation, you could have been at his bedside and, and um, you could have uh, you know, helped him along. So Lumpur had his walking stick and he put the, the end of the walking stick in the middle of, of Varapanyo's chest and pushed on it. And so he was lying on his back on the ground and Lumpur's leaning on the walking stick pressing on Varapanyo's chest and says, okay, now, bud, ho, bud, ho, oh, oh. <laughs> So he's kind of gasping for a breath. Come on, come on. Or maybe you'd like a candy. You like sweet things, don't you? You'd like a candy, Varapanyo. Oh. Kind of gasping for breath. So, well, you know, what's the point? You know, it'd it just be confusing and distressing for him. Just let him be surrounded by the the people he knows. The guy, is, you know, he's lived a pretty heedless life for the last 40 years. He's not going to be able to fix things at the last minute. It'll just be upsetting and confusing. Better to just let him go with the people and things that he's used to and then we'll do the kusala dhamma, a kusala dhamma uh, when, the time, when, he, when he's gone. So that doesn't appear in this book, but uh, it was a, a, a famous story, of one of the many Warapanyo stories, that uh, because uh, also confronting the teacher and saying, you're wrong, you shouldn't do that, that's really bad. Not many Thai monks would have done that, so, but uh, the Westerners are more prone to that kind of uh, feedback. Um, but yeah, Lumpur Cha was just, he, he saw that if, uh, if someone hasn't fortified their mind in a good way for a long time, then desperately trying to, to focus on buddha or buddha, where their mind is tied up with all sorts of other concerns and and memories and such like it. His sense was it's only going to create more confusion. Just let him go in the in the in the surrounded by the people and the things that he's used to, and not not create any more distress or difficulty. Is it the Tibetan and the Thai? I've been I've been mean that they they just practice so long and they have the book thick, you mm -hmm. know. And as you mentioned, that the moment of death. The mind could become so powerful. It can so do, they yeah. Use, they use yeah. that moment, and of course, with the, all the accumulation of the factors, maybe it 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 helped them to get. I, I I'm prepared for that too. Yeah, well, it does. Uh, uh, you do you do have passages in the suttas where the Buddha talks about that uh, and how well, there's a sutta called reappearance through aspiration, sutta number a hundred and. 120 in the Majima, and it's called Reappearance Through Aspiration. <clears throat> and uh, he talks about how you know you can uh, you focus your attention on the desire to be reborn in a particular realm, and so that uh, you you can do that if you wish. Um, but also in advice to to Mahanama, where Mahanama is asking him about um, what if he's if Mahanama is called to the bedside of someone who's dying, what advice he should give. And then the, the Buddha so gives him uh, a very helpful instruction. Says, if if someone um, 
is asking for advice, you encourage them to not attach to their, their family or their belongings or their, their property or their business or whatever. And then say, are they um, focused on being reborn in the heaven of the four great kings? And say, well, why settle for the Chatu Maharajika Devas? Why not aim for the Tavatinsa heaven? Or why not why settle for the Tavatinsa heaven? Why not aim for the, the Yama Devas? Or the, why not aim for the, the Tusita heaven? Or if you why, why settle for the Tusita heaven? Why not aim for the the Nimanarati Devas or the Paranimitavasivati Devas and all the way up to the Brahma realm. And then finally he says after this long succession, said, then if they say yes, their mind is is focused on being reborn in the Brahma realm, then say to them, why settle on the, the, uh, the Brahma realm uh, when uh, what will be more beneficial will be to focus the mind on Sakaya Niroda, the cessation of identity. Um, and so, if they and it's it's an unusual term. It's it doesn't appear in many places, but sakaya niroda, the cessation of identity. And he said, so if a, if the mind is is focused on sakaya niroda, then so the, the mind of that layperson uh, is uh, there's no difference in the liberation of their of their mind between them uh, that layperson and uh, um, and a monk who's been an arahant for a hundred years. So it's one of the few occasions where the Buddha talks about a layperson uh, realizing complete enlightenment, in uh, very few places, but it, it is right at the moment of death, at the time of death. So those kind of things feed into that appreciation that that last moment can be very potent. But there's another teaching in a different place, <laughs> I think it's in the Anguttara Nikaya, where the Buddha says, this is for the virtuous, not for the unvirtuous. So you've got to have some you got to have you got to have some money on your on your card <laughs> otherwise it's just a piece of plastic you know <laughs> so if you haven't got the wherewithal it's okay it's for the virtuous not for the unvirtuous you've got to have done your work so if you have done your work and you want to be reborn in the tavatinsa uh, devas or the brahmaloka or coming back to the human world a particular place then the mind can steer itself in those ways and the tibetans certainly have a whole Technology around that very, very sort of thoroughly laid out, but the the roots of the same principles are there in the Theravada. But I feel that particularly that advice to Mahanama about being knocked down in the street by a you know, by a, a runaway elephant or something that, that that's uh, that's extremely significant because it's pointing to the fact that what's more important is what you do for the previous forty years, <laughs> not what it doesn't all depend on what the mind is doing at the last moment and so that uh, that um, that uh, I feel is far more helpful uh, advice in the in general terms rather than the kind of gamble of okay as long as I get it right just at the last moment I'm, I'm good to go yeah <laughs> the odds are not great <laughs> okay so to continue In your practice, you should aim at this kind of understanding. Seeing things in this way can alleviate and reduce your experience of suffering. Before you can end suffering, you have to reduce it first, little by little. All of you who have undergone the training should be able to verify this. I've observed some of you changing over the years, and you can compare what it was like. Sorry, you can compare what it was like for you before and now. Look at the condition of your mind. There are big differences now. Why is it like that? The things you grasped at so much have been losing their power over you. But still, 
Desire wants instant realization and accomplishment. It's pretty ordinary that everyone wants to be liberated right away, but it can't happen. I remember how one monk used to read stories of people who attained Arahant stage merely through hearing a little teaching or meditating briefly. Then he'd start to wonder, what's the matter with me? Am I practicing in the wrong way? This would make him confused and upset, so he'd shoulder his bowl and a mosquito net umbrella and go off into a forest. His practice didn't work any better there, so off he would go to another forest. But he wasn't able to pacify his mind in that forest, so he went to yet another forest. Still it wasn't peaceful. It wasn't peaceful in the mountains either. Wherever he went, there wasn't any peace for him. And there didn't seem to be a way to find peace, so his mind never got out of this turmoil. It was because he was thinking that peace is in the living environment. Yes, it does have a part in it, but the larger part lies with right view. That is where peace will really be found. If there's wrong view, the mind is always at work, scheming how to find peace. Oh yeah, I've heard that mountain is a really peaceful place. That's where I'll make an end of the afflictions. It has a part in it, as I said, but it's a condition for only a little bit of tranquility. So you keep on going when the mind is unsettled. Someone tells you, you really ought to go to such and such a mountain. You'll believe this and go there. When it doesn't work out, you'll try other places, always finding disappointment. On and on you go. You should visit this Ajahn. You should study with that Ajahn. Keeps you on the move until you've gone through all the mountains and all the teachers. Finally, you might decide there's no such thing as enlightenment and quit altogether. But really, where is tranquility to be found? It is in right view. Dwelling in right view, you'll be at peace no matter where you are. When people stay in quietude, it may be uncertain whether they finish the afflictions or if something remains. There might actually be a lot left, but they're completely unaware of it and feel fine, enjoying their calm state. They're comfortable only because they are accustomed to the place. If they go somewhere else, they don't feel right and have to go looking for the so-called right place once again. Actually, when good people try to practice, it'll make them mad. All kinds of suffering and turmoil flare up. I went through this. Mind filled with pride, wandering all over, always wanting things to be other than they were. Everything was always too big or too small, too long or too short. Nothing was ever right. There was no moderation, no middle ground. It was outside the natural balance of Dharma, always in a condition of struggle. You have to practice to stop the insanity in order to feel better. So uh, just going back to the... Um, peaceful, clear states in a st when having a stroke. <laughs> Not the one who's advocating having strokes or, or um, consuming drugs that stop uh, the mind and just leave the awareness lingering there. It is a very dependent condition. It's not, a, it's not an enlightened state. So that when the condition changes, then all the, the um, uh, defilements and difficulties can, can come back. And as Lumpur puts it, uh, when people stay in quietude, it may be uncertain whether they have finished the afflictions or if something remains. There might actually be a lot left, but they're completely unaware of it and feel fine, enjoying the calm state. So there can be a sense of, well, this is great. I guess I'm having a stroke, but this is really good. <laughs> or uh, the, there can be particular conditions. but So it doesn't negate the clarity of mind or the sense of peace or uh, understanding that's there but it is a very dependent condition. That's the, the, the crunch point. 
And so when those conditions are no longer present, they're no longer supportive, then all of the the rest of the influences come back in and then that uh, quasi-enlightened state or that clear state is no longer accessible. And you know, I've known people who had, from uh, 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 various different reasons, um, having uh, the very, very clear and sort of lucid mind states and then... Um, f- uh, when that passed over after a, a few days or a few weeks, then f- uh, being heartbroken and trying to get back to that same kind of clarity and getting very sort of depressed and distressed because they've known that clarity, they've known that peacefulness and and that you know sort of perfect simplicity and purity of mind, but then couldn't get back to it because of having to go to work and <laughs> dealing with taxes and people and uh, uh, and everything else, and so that because of that identification or attachment to that that clarity, then it becomes almost something that was worse because it's, it's out of reach and, and can't be uh, can't be held, can't be known. So it, it, those states, uh, they can be genuinely uh, clear and uh, unconfused and what's understood, or seen or known in those states can be completely valid, but wisdom... <laughs> Is always bringing into the, the the picture that this is dependent, this is a, a, a temporary state. It's like um, it's like a, a beautiful day where everything is right. Enjoy it, <laughs> but it's not going to be this way all the time. So that there's a, a skillfulness in the attitude with which that is that is held. So um, also the um, Lumpocha. He was well aware that Westerners, in, t- in particular, could be very self-critical and feel like they're um, they're very flawed and have uh, got all kinds of things wrong with them. But uh, I feel it was very compassionate for him to say to the group, "You know, I've observed some of you over the over the years, and you know, you're really different from the way you were when you showed up." And uh, and sometimes he would make that observation to other people if people were complaining about this or that. Um, uh, monks or, or nuns' behaviour said, well, you should have seen them five years ago. <laughs> He's a lot better than he used to be. You know? <laughs> should have been around then. Yeah. Um, so, the, uh, And there's a there's an example that you get I- in the, the suttas where the, the, someone's saying, how, how can we know whether we're progressing? Because I, I, I don't seem to be making uh, any kind of uh, improvement in my mind, my life. And the Buddha says, it's like a, a carpenter if they get a, a a new tool like a saw or an adz, and that they they use the tool every day for for five years, they don't uh, they're not aware of how much of the handle is being worn away each day. But after five years have gone by, they can see the imprint of their fingers, their, and their thumb in the handle of the of the saw or the or the adz that they they've been using. So you can't say so much has been worn away each day. But look, there's the imprint of the hand is is there in the handle of the tool after that time. So, so you know, if you look, if you really explore, you can see that what, the way you handle situations, the way you dealt with praise or criticism, gain or loss, um, uh, the way you deal with with um, success and failure and, and uh, events in your life, if you look you know, and compare them side by side, you can see that uh, changes have been made. Like looking at the handle of your of your your saw and saying, "Oh yeah, that's yeah, definitely that the, the, there's there's an imprint that has been made." And then uh, the um, looking for the perfect place for practice. <laughs> Again, uh, 
that sense of somewhere it's going to be absolutely ideal conditions. But the the problem is that along with the ideal conditions, you are there. Not you personally, but you know, we are there. And sometimes we forget that. And um, as I was uh, reading this and uh, preparing the reading, I was reminded how um, in my, my naivety when I was... Uh, living in London as a student and um, trying to figure out what to do with myself after I graduated and then I uh, decided to go traveling and I remember meeting somebody at a party and they were very sort of sparkly eyed and, and suntanned and covered with all sorts of silver jewelry and 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 this person just come back from Bali and said, oh Bali's a wonderful place it's a truly really mystical island I thought oh wow it's a mystical island I, you know, I, I, want, I want a mystical life, I'll go to Bali. And this person was just chatting with this young woman at a party, like, well, that's a good, you know, this certainly seems to have a good result, this bright-eyed person is very kind of happy, not taking into account, this is just randomly meeting some stranger in a party for like 20 minutes, and then thinking, oh, Bali's obviously a good place, that's where mystic, you know, the mystical is. And so I made these plans to go to Bali. And um, uh, I fortunately had a, uh, I, I grew up um, riding horses. And when I was a teenager, this neighbor of ours had a, had a business transporting racehorses out around the world to Japan, Australia, and the Far East. Um, uh, had sent a message saying uh, if I ever wanted a job as a groom on the flight taking race, racehorses out to the Far East, he could give me a, a job and a free flight out to the Far East. So, so I, I was about 16 when I got that message so I flagged that and then as I was finishing my college years I got back in touch with him said is that job is that offer still open he said yes so I didn't get paid but I got a free ride to the far east so uh, I made these plans and traveled out um, I had my 21st birthday and then about a week later got on the plane with 22 racehorses to KL that's my wife to Kuala Lumpur uh, as my journey to the east was on a plane with 22 racehorses. <laughs> yeah, we all have our karmic hookups. What a kind of plane. It was a, well, it was a cargo plane. Oh, wow. The, the horse, if you want to know, the horses are each in, they have these little pods with three, uh, three stalls. And so you have three racehorses in, in each of the stalls. And then they lift it up on a forklift and put it into the into the, uh, the, the, the hold of this cargo plane. So there was then a groom for each group of three horses. Because thoroughbred horses, the ones that do the racing, are not very bright. <laughs> they're, they're built for speed. Uh, and so they don't have a lot of native intelligence. So they're pretty clueless, really. Um, they just know, forward, go, you know, <laughs> roughly. <laughs> so, you know, sort of like Welsh mountain ponies and ordinary... Uh, Ordinary horses and ponies have a lot more native intelligence, but thoroughbreds are bred for speed and athletic ability. So they're, they're, not, very, they're not very smart, and so they're easily spooked. So they get, they get nervous. And so because the plane has to land and take off a few times, the groom has to be there with the horses for each takeoff and landing to be holding them and be close so that it kind of comforts them, and that's your job. So um, anyway, that was, uh, that was how I went out to the Far East and then made my way from KL down through um, Indonesia and to Java and then through to Bali. And then got to Bali and thought, right, <laughs> mystical island. And, then, and it, just as the monk finding himself there on the mountain with uh, 
uh, in a peaceful place. I thought, okay, this is the mystical island. Damn. <laughs> it's just the same as I was when I was in England, being not mystical. And that I, I kind of felt uh, just extraordinarily stupid how... Did I really think I was going to leave everything behind? That all my kind of difficulties and and distresses and and challenges, I was going to leave that all in England and arrive on this this particular spot of the planet, and everything was going to be mystical and good. And I thought, actually, I think I did. <laughs> but I, so I, I realized I had been extraordinarily naive. But uh, uh, it took me a while to figure out well what to do instead. It wasn't just a matter of geography, but then going from place to place, I kept finding myself there. And so it was finally I got to, to southern Thailand, to Phuket. And uh, this was in the uh, December, the end of 77. So I'd been traveling about three or four months. And I finally realized, well, geography does not matter. You can be in these beautiful places, uh, you know, exquisite uh, environments. It's just like a, if, those of you who remember the adverts for bounty chocolate bars, like you actually like living in a place that's like a bounty chocolate bar advert, and yet you're still insecure, miserable, and uh, and anxious. And so uh, I, that was where I realised I have to do something serious about my mind. Geography does not matter; that really doesn't have anything to do with with anything. And so, but it took me. Uh, it was a, a rude awakening, and uh, in um, in Bali to, to to have discovered that my mind came along the, uh, with me on the plane. <laughs> so then uh, it was uh, being on that uh, beach in, in Phuket and I decided, okay, I'm going to leave the whole Western Traveller beach scene behind. And, and I met some people who, uh, who'd been uh, in Ubon working at a refugee camp and they said, no, uh, Ubon, no, there's no beaches, no mountains, no tourists, no one speaks any English, but their people are the, the salt of the earth. They're the most wonderful people you'll ever meet. I thought, yes. <laughs> And so uh, I just took off to, to Ubon, not aiming for Buddhism or a monastery at all, just to get away from the whole tourist scene and to immerse myself in uh, Thai culture. And uh, the, the day after I arrived there, I found myself at Wat Nanachat. Just the way things worked out. I, I, were, I was, had the address of some doctors who worked at the refugee camp but when I got to the house where they lived, they they were away, but other people there, so let me stay overnight. But it was clear I needed to, to travel on the next day. And so I said, well, is, uh, where, where is there to go in this area? What, what's there to visit? And, they, and one of the nurses there, as an English nurse, said uh, they, the week before they'd all been to Wat Nanachat to take Christmas presents to the monks. Because it was just after Christmas, it was early January. He said, well, there's these, this monastery of Western monks. And I thought, monks, oh. <laughs> rules. I don't do rules. Yeah. That's not my thing. And, uh, but I thought, okay, well, I need, to, I need to find somewhere to go. So I'll, and it's not far away, so I'll, I'll find my way out there. And so that was the uh, next day I, I made my way to Wat Nanachat. And uh, walked in not realizing that was what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. <laughs> It was uh, early January of 1978. And it was kind of interesting because I was, I was hitchhiking. I did a lot of hitchhiking through Malaysia and Indonesia. And uh, 
uh, in northeast Thailand, they really didn't understand what hitchhiking was. And I was standing outside this little noodle shop with my thumb out for about three hours. And the people, no one spoke any English. And so the, the people there sort of brought me out a cup of tea and then brought me some noodles and still standing there with my thumb. And uh, eventually they took pity on me and I was on a very, very tight budget, extremely thin shoestring budget. And so then uh, they, people started saying, taxi, taxi, because they, they could figure out where I was going because I'm a Farang. I was in Ubon. That's the only place you would be going if you're a Westerner. Uh, and so I said, no, taxis are kind of completely out of my price range. But eventually I just gave up uh, arguing because we couldn't speak each other's language. And then it became clear that the taxi driver was going to give me a free ride because he thought I was going there to become a monk. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and as we were driving along, he was kind of making these sort of scissoring motions. I had kind of a, a bush of curly hair at that time and a beard. And he was kind of making these scissoring motions. No, 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 no. It's not my thing. I'm, f I'm fond of my hair. But yeah, he gave me a free taxi ride. And even monks have to pay for taxis in Thailand. But I, as a layman, I got a free ride in the taxi. So I never found out who that taxi driver was, but that was my journey to the monastery. It was a, a, a generous taxi driver in, in Warin. And uh, then I, I walked in the, the gate and um, just really looking for a place to stay for a couple of days. I didn't like organized religion, and I didn't agree with rules. <laughs> That's the some part of the luggage I, I went in with. But then uh, what, uh, what impressed me was that, because I knew that the insight I'd had on the beach was that it wasn't a matter of geography, it's a matter of your mind. And then within uh, a day of talking with the monks and novices there, I realized this is exactly what, what I need, because this is all about working with your mind in a very direct and practical way. So that's, this is what's going to make a difference. Okay. And so uh, I found myself staying. It also helped that they all spoke English. <laughs> and uh, well, maybe one last story that was um, significant was um, so as I as I walked up to the the uh, the, the door of the the sala, there was a, uh, a Thai woman uh, working in the garden, to the, uh, in just in front of the the doors of the the, the sala building, and she was wearing these sort of uh, blue denim uh, outfits. So that is, is quite common in Southeast Asia, and that's so I thought, oh, she must be one of the locals, like a kind of peasant gear. And then she stood up and said, hello, <laughs> with this Cheltenham Ladies College accent. Said, hello, you must be looking for the abbot. I thought, oh, wow, the locals speak really good English right now. <laughs> this is amazing. And she did actually go to Cheltenham Ladies College. So it was, uh, so it was uh, and she just... Uh, was uh, was up there to to be helping out for the weekend. So she wasn't a local. It was uh, the sister of Noy Thompson, Nuni, and so that was uh, my, uh, my introduction to, to the the, the um, Buddhist monastery in the, off in the, the wilds of the northeast. Finally, getting away from all my conditioning and my background, and fright, this frightfully English <laughs> <laughs> presence there as well. So some things you can't get away from, but then maybe you don't need to. So I'll leave it there for today. Um,